listening to the Living Room North Living Room North podcast. As Ryan said, my name is Julianne, and I am super excited to be here. Very nervous, as he said. It's my very first time ever speaking, um, but I'm really excited. I feel like he downplayed one of the things he said about me. He called me a small group leader. I am, but I personally feel like I'm a small group leader to incredible freshman girls right here. Super lucky, super blessed. Um, and he said I work here, and it's a super great job. But another fun fact about me is I love football. I know that's a very weird random fact that I just want to talk about, but it's true. And I love football from a very young age. Honestly, I had to kind of learn to like football if I wanted to talk to my dad or my brother from the months of August to January. So growing up, I just learned about football, and it turns out I really loved it. We also had two season tickets to the Falcons, and so we're a family of four, so we can all do the math together, and that means two people are not going to the Falcons game whenever we have a Falcons game football. And so my brother and I decided every Sunday we would just have a battle royale. We were just gonna attack each other until one of us got to go. I'm telling you, like, I would claw him, he would body slam me. I have scars, y'all, from us duking it out, and I'm sure my dad probably just flip-flop between both of us, but to us, we had to earn our way to the Falcons game. So when I got to go, it was a blast. I loved it, the atmosphere, the environment, just fell in love. And so as I grew up, I knew whenever I chose to go to college, football would indeed be a small factor. So I went to the big football school of Mississippi State University. Yeah, I know, a lot of people are like, that's not a football school, and that's fair, and I get that. But when I was there, we had DAC. So I had like a little window of really fun, great football where we were number one in the country for eight weeks till Alabama came and steamrolled us. But until then, y'all, we were crushing it. I even became a football recruiter for Mississippi State. That means I got to hang out on the field, talk to some really cool people, watch the game, AKA it was a dream job. I had a blast, I loved it. And so my junior year comes along and Mississippi State makes it into a bowl game, which I know, again, rare, but we did it, y'all. It's facts. And it was in Charlotte, North Carolina. So my friends and I are like, this is it. Let's go to Charlotte. It's on December 30th, so we're on winter break. We can go. We can explore a new city. And we decide to get tickets. So we're there. We're in our hotel room, getting on our cute game day outfits on. And we look out, and it's just torrential downpour. Just not even like, oh, maybe it'll clear up in an hour. No, it is like black skies pouring down rain. And like I said before, it's on December 30th, so it's freezing. So it's cold and pouring, but we decide we're still gonna go. So we put on our ponchos, and I have a photo of that. Look at that, yeah, it's coming. There, it, oh yeah, yeah. Some of y'all didn't think I could rock a poncho, but you look at that photo and tell me I'm not rocking a poncho. <laughs> Uh, we go, Carrie Underwood is there. That's a weird time, but love her, so I was very excited. So we watch her. We get to the game. We're in the student section, and there's like 100, 150 people in the student section because, again, it is cold and it is rainy, so not a lot of people want to brave it like we wanted to. So whenever Mississippi State did something great, they would pan to the student section, and we were on TV a lot because, again, not a lot of options out there. So... 
we're getting text messages from our families like, oh, we saw you on TV. I'm getting friends texting me saying they saw me on TV. And I was like, 15 seconds of fame, here I am, this is great. Go Mississippi State, I got my cowbell ringing because that's what we do in Mississippi. And I am having a blast until I wasn't. So Mississippi State had a touchdown. And so I was like, full-fledged, like, yeah, Mississippi State, ringing my cowbell. And um, I was on TV at this moment, I did not know. So you can pause it, and there's an unflattering photo of me from being on TV. I have multiple chins. My hair is going everywhere because it's raining and it's wet. I have crazy eyes, and I didn't look the best. And so next thing I know, my phone is blowing up for a different reason. People are making memes out of my photo. People are taking my photo and putting me on different backgrounds on Snapchat. People are tagging me on Instagram. People are tagging me on Facebook. People are texting me and putting me in group chats and Snapchat groups, making fun of me in the photo of people I haven't talked to since high school. So all of a sudden I went viral. I went viral for a reason that I wish did not exist. And everything that they were saying about me all of a sudden became my truth. They called me fat. They called me ugly. They said I was unworthy to be there. They said I was not representing Mississippi State. They said I should leave. And all of a sudden, all of that became my truth. All of a sudden, it didn't matter if I, anyone had said nice things to me the last 20-something years. Everything else didn't matter. Those became my truth. And so I sat there, and I just started crying. And as the game continued, I realized, well, I'm still going to be on screen. I don't want to be on screen crying. So what I decided to do as a devastated 20-year-old, I was going to stand there and pose like that the rest of the game because I did not want the camera to come on me and me have another photo go viral. Or I would hide behind my cowbell so if I was on the screen, you couldn't see me or you couldn't see my face. So... That is how I went into my second year of junior year. And I decided from then on there, I was not gonna be in any more photos. So if you look at me second semester junior year, you can't find a photo of me. Or if you can, I'm hiding behind a friend. I decided I was gonna turn down multiple opportunities because I didn't wanna be on a stage or in the limelight in any way, shape or form where someone could make fun of me. I even quit being a football recruiter because I didn't want to do anything that associated me with that event that I went through. So I let the fear of that moment and the shame that I felt from what everyone was saying about me dictate my life. And I wish I could tell you guys, I just immediately went to my Bible. That's just not the truth. It didn't take me until probably a few more months until I realized, oh, what does God say about me? So I start looking through the Bible and I end up in Psalms. And so King David is just writing poems and songs about God. And he writes a pretty famous verse that I feel like many of y'all may have heard, but it is Psalms 139, 14. And it is, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, some of y'all may be like me, and I have heard that many times, but it went in one ear and absolutely right out the other. Maybe you've never seen this verse. Or maybe you've seen it and you just don't believe it, even though it is what God says about us. And I understand because it's so much easier to think about what everyone else in the world is saying and it's so much louder than what God is saying sometimes. And I know right now if I asked you, you could probably tell me three things that people have said about you that aren't true. 
easily. You probably could tell me where you were, what you're doing, what you're wearing. But if I asked you, what does God say about you? What are three things God says about you? You may not be able to. Or it may take you a little bit longer to figure out what he says about you, but it may not come to you as fast as everything else, what the world is saying about you, and sometimes maybe what you are saying about you. So I want to unpack this verse a little bit. I know that's weird because it's like six words, so how much can we unpack? But it really is powerful, especially when you understand where fearfully and wonderfully come from. So fearfully, whenever it is translated from Hebrews, means with great reverence, heartfelt intentions, and with respect. So that means God created us with great reverence. The God of the universe created us with heartfelt interests, and he created us with respect. And that right there, I feel like should be enough for us. I feel like we should be cemented in that, and that right there is beyond powerful. But when we add what wonderfully means when it's translated, it means unique and set apart. So that means that God made us exactly who we're supposed to be. He made me exactly where I'm supposed to be, football-loving, 12 chins out, cowbell-ringing girl, and he let us be set apart so that we can stand on who he is and not what everyone else is saying. And I know that it's super easy to, for me to stand up on the stage and tell you guys this, but I had to learn this the really, really hard way. And I wish I could go back to my junior year self and whisper this verse in my ear to know that I'm okay and that no matter what the world is saying about me, God made me fearfully and wonderfully made. He made me with heartfelt intent. He made me with respect. He made me set apart. And so, because I didn't have any action steps walking out of that event, I really want you guys to be able to have some action steps walking into anything that you may walk into that the world may throw at you. So one of the first ones is, I want you to write down some truths that God says about you. I want you guys to write down that you're fearfully and wonderfully made. And I want you guys to write down affirmations about yourself. I want you guys to write it on your mirror. And I want you guys to get sticky notes and put it in your car. I want you guys to put sticky notes and put it in your computer so that when the world is telling you something about yourself, you can combat it and be like, nope, that's not true. You know why? Because God made me and he made me with great reverence, and he made me unique, and that's all I care about, and that's the only ground I need to stand on. Another thing that I think you guys should try to do is find accountability. And so what that looks like is find a friend that you can go to and be like, hey, I'm telling this about myself, and I know it's not true, but right now it feels like a truth, so I need you to be able to tell me that it's not true. Have a friend that can pour into you and love you or remind you who you are and whose you are. I have a friend who does this so well to me. She has an affirmation calendar as her background of her phone. And so she'll text me affirmations in the morning and it's great. I'll wake up and it's like, you're blooming right where you are. And it's like, yes, I am. I am blooming. So it's great. Get a friend that can just do that for you. And the third one, ask God to remind you for who he says you are. And that looks like, honest and open prayer. That means it's okay to shake your fist and yell at him because I know I did. God and I had a lot of time together. I had to get a lot of anger out that I directed directly at him. And I was crying. I was screaming. And you know what? He took it. He still loves me. And I think that sometimes he's okay with, or he's always okay taking your, uh, our anger directed at him because he just wants us talking to him. 
That means we're inviting him into the conversation. And I know when I'm not talking to him, that probably means I'm not listening for him. So if I'm talking to him, even if it's yelling, crying, that means that I will also be listening for him. And that's a really, really big. And I think that those hopefully action steps will help you guys walk into some maybe potentially hard situations because the world can be really hard and it's really, really good at knocking us down. And I know if Ryan had asked me to stand up on this stage five years ago, I would have said no so fast. I wouldn't even thought twice about it, y'all, because I wouldn't have been able to stand the thought of me standing up here and someone being able to point out a flaw that I had or someone pointing out anything that I could nitpick about myself or someone taking a photo of me and me looking at it and be like, oh, I look fat or oh, I look ugly. I couldn't do it, but now I can. And that's because I believe what God says about me over what everyone else may say about me, whatever untruths I may hear. And I even looked for the photo for y'all because I didn't think it'd be fair if I stood up here this whole time and talked about a picture that really dictated a lot of my life. And I can't find it. I even downloaded Twitter to try to find it, y'all. And it doesn't exist anymore. A picture that dictated so much of my life doesn't even exist anymore. Now, I don't know what your picture is. I don't know if it's something that someone says about you. I don't know if it's an action that you keep uh, getting brought to you or an action that is constantly associated with you. I don't know if it is some negative self-talk that is on repeat in your brain over and over and over again. But what I do know is that God loves you and that God made you fearfully and wonderfully made. And that is the only opinion that should ever matter to us. First of all, if I haven't met you, my name is Jesse. Uh, I work here at Brownsbridge. Um, I am so, for, I, I wasn't planning to say this, but I need to say this. Uh, I'm so thrilled about the family environment that y'all have. Like, this is so special. And what Ryan does to set this up so well, like, they, he lo- him and his team, they love and care about y'all so much. The prayer that was prayed uh, over you guys tonight was so intense. So I just wanted to say that. I, I'm so thrilled to be here. Um, first off, I'm not here to teach or preach to anybody tonight. Uh, so as Ryan set us up, uh, I'm here to simply impart a little bit of my perspective on my college experience, one particular thing that plagued me at my time in college, and then one tool that helped draw me out of that in college and beyond. And so in order for us to do that, in order for me to do that, I need to go way back tonight, need to give you super context. And so I'm gonna go really far back. I was born on a Tuesday. Gosh, that was so much funnier in my mind. Then uh, the chapter I want to go to in my life is my mom. Uh, this, this chapter is titled My Mom. My mom uh, grew up in a sexually and physically abusive home. And uh, as you can imagine, uh, she grew up devoid of the love and attention that she deserved. And so fast forward to my childhood, and my childhood was plagued with a lot of the uh, consequences of that abuse. And so there was a lot of baggage that she brought and she tried to mask the pain of that baggage baggage through substance abuse and through verbal abuse. So smoking, drinking, heavy drinking, drugs, all that was prevalent in my household growing up. Um, And there was, you know, caught in the middle were me and my sisters. And so 
My childhood was really a lot of high expectations. Perfection was an expectation. Uh, these are you know, all attributes, again, of my mom masking her pain. Perfection is expected. Uh, consequences were severe. Um, and there was really a one-way street of yelling and screaming and belittling. And so that's what I grew up in. And that's, uh, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have anything to say about my childhood other than I was so grateful to be out of it when I got out of it and into high school, went to public. So the, the, uh, the icing on the cake is that I was also homeschooled by my mom. And so me and my sisters, we didn't realize what we were living in until we got into the real world, into high school. I failed to manage a lot of the emotions that I had in high school. And so there we are, we get to college. So this is, I'm, I'm, I'm doing all this to get us to college. So I go to college and this is the baggage that I, that I bring with me. So I went to a little school just north of here called Young Harris. Anybody heard of it? Young Harris? Yeah, okay, okay, a few. Uh, walked onto the cross-country team. Also did a lot of walking on the cross-country team. Um, and w with my baggage, the baggage that I brought to college, I began to experience something that bubbled up to the surface, and that was anxiety. So anxiety affects most of us in this room, statistically speaking, and I think most of you would say that that is true of yourselves, whether you want to raise your hand or not and say, yeah, 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 I struggle with anxiety. I struggled with anxiety too, and it was the biggest thing that I fought in college. And so my, what my anxiety looked like, this may be different for you, but what my anxiety looked like was I struggled with perfectionism. I struggled intensely with anger, with being short-tempered. Um, the pressure that I put on myself was so high. Um, and that's what, that's what I struggled with. So I beat myself up a lot in college. I, again, I, was, I, was, I, didn't ha I didn't need to get an A plus on the paper. My paper needed to be the paper. My paper needed to be the paper that the, prof or the, uh, the professor was like, hey, so we got this assignment, we got an essay due, uh, but Jesse's is like, man, if you need an example, that's the one we want you to use. That's, that was the pressure I put on myself. Um, my grades didn't need to be great. They needed to be exceptional. All my extracurriculars, I was editor on the newspaper. I was doing, you know, everything I did needed to be exceptional. And so that was the pressure that I put on myself. I also put a lot of pressure through my anxiety on the people around me, the people in the closest proximity to me. I hurt them in the wake of my anxiety, um, in my stress, in my pressure, in my pressure to be the best that I could be. And so I hurt a lot of people along the way. And I think a lot of you can resonate with this struggle as well. The very things that you, you're piecing it together, y'all are smart. The very things that I was trying to run away from, from my childhood, remember that, that abuse and that baggage that I came to college with? The very things I was trying to run away from, the anxiety, the pressure, all of that, the perfectionism, those are the things that actually caught up with me and that I struggled with the most. And so if I could go back and write myself a note, I would not write myself a note and hand it over. I would write myself a note and slap myself in the face with it. And the note would simply say this. It would say, zoom out. Zoom out. It would say, zoom out, because I wanted to zoom out. If I could go back and tell myself anything, it would be zoom out so far that you begin to lose sight of your anxiety that is plaguing your life and start to see others, start to love others, start to focus your attention on others. I learned that when I zoomed out far enough, 
to, to start loving others, I re- began to reduce my anxiety. So loving others requires selflessness. We know that. Loving others requires humility. But to love others really well requires a thing called empathy. Empathy starves anxiety. It starves anxiety of the oxygen that it needs to grow. And as I went along in college and in my post-college days, I learned that in order to starve my anxiety, anxiety, I need to learn and practice empathy. Y'all, as I said, are way smarter than me, and so you don't need a definition of what empathy is. But an illustration that helped me a lot with empathy in terms of my anxiety is this one, and it's on a tennis court. Anybody play tennis in here? Anybody? Ah, a couple of people. Okay. All right. So, but much of you are familiar with tennis, hopefully. If you're not, it's like large ping pong, uh, right? So, uh, anybody know what this is? This is a tennis ball machine. Does anybody know what the technical term for this machine is? No? Okay. It's called a tennis ball machine. <laughs> yep. So, the, te- the purpose of the tennis ball machine is to lob tennis balls to the other side, and it's there for you to practice, okay? So, you're on the other side and you're receiving all the tennis balls. And if you notice, the tennis ball machine has absolutely no regard for the return. The tennis ball machine does not care what you do with the ball. The tennis ball machine is simply sending the ball over to you, doesn't care what you do with it. So before I go on in the illustration, have you guys noticed something that most of the people in our life may represent the tennis ball machine? Most of the people in our life lob stuff at us, pieces of themselves, how their weekend went, their, their, their thoughts, their emotions, their beliefs, their convictions, with no regard for the return. They don't pause long enough to sit and listen and internalize what we have to say. They're not curious about our rebuttal, and they don't wait long enough to hear what's on the other side of the net. So empathy is the opposite of that. Empathy takes away the tennis ball machine. Empathy is two people on the same court on either side volleying the ball beautifully back and forth. Empathy is focusing on the other person on the other side of the net. See, in order to play tennis well, in order to not hopefully lose the match, you have to focus way more on the person who's on the other side of the net than on yourself. If you focus so much on yourself that you lose sight of who's on the other side of the net, you're gonna, you're gonna lose the match, okay? You gotta focus on who's on the other side of the net. You gotta l- focus on their footwork. You gotta focus on how they hit the ball and where they are and where you think they're gonna be. You have to focus on them. And when we focus on them, when we zoom out, when we start to think about others, when we start to focus on others, what do we do? We lose sight of ourselves. We lose sight of our own anxiety. Jesus had a thing or two to say about empathy. In fact, Jesus said, hey, Old Testament, there's like hundreds and hundreds of commandments. New commandments, two. You guys seem pretty straightforward, so I'm just gonna give you two commandments. And so one of the two commandments that Jesus gave us contained empathy. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets hang on this. Paul, the author of the majority of the New Testament, y'all know Paul, he took it a step further. And he said, for the entire law is, is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. And then one more time, he steps it up and he says, in humility, value others above yourself. 
Value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. So I, I now have three kids. We could throw that up. Yeah, my three kids. Uh, on the left is Braylon. She's four. And then on the right is Liam. He's three. And in the middle is Colin, and he is almost two. And then we're expecting a fourth in May. So, yeah, uh, we've lost our minds um, completely. Uh, and then there's Kayla, my wife, my beautiful bride. Uh, can we give it up for Kayla? Kayla's in the back. Kayla, uh, Kayla is the kindest and actually most empathetic person that I know. And she's taught me so much about empathy. Um, she didn't know I was going to say that, so she's going to hate me. Uh, but one thing that Kayla and I have learned so far is very young parents. We do not know what we're doing. We have three going on four kids, still have no idea what we're doing. But one thing that we've learned and one thing that we've employed so far is we've started to stop asking our kids, what do you want to do when you grow up? The quintessential question, what do you want to do when you grow up? What do you want to do? What do you want to do? And we started trying to ask them, what problem do you want to solve when you grow up? What problem do you want to solve when you get older? And you guys are smart. You're going to notice the difference. What do I want to do when I grow up? What do I want to do when I grow up? What problem do I want to solve when I grow up? What problem do I want to solve? There's me, and then there's we, right? So that's what empathy does. Me, empathy gets me outside of that into we, okay? So when you zoom out, you, f you, start to, you start to go, wow, I don't have to figure anything out. I don't have to figure out what's my job, what's my career, what's my, what's my major going to be. I, I don't need to figure everything out for me. When you start to zoom out and use empathy, you start to realize that there's a bigger broken world out there that could use our help, that could use your help, that could use really smart people's help. And you can do, use your gifts and talents to help fix this broken world through something called empathy. And so when you zoom out, when you look at the bigger picture, you start to forget about your own perfection, your own brokenness, your own anxiety. Okay, just like the tennis analogy, you start to focus on others and you start to lose sight of your own anxiety. You start to starve it of that oxygen. So what we're talking about, that's what we're talking about tonight. And I've got a really close friend. Uh, many of you may not have heard of him. His name's Barack Obama. Um, and he has something to say about empathy. So he said, um, we talk a lot in this country about the financial deficit. I, th I don't think we're talking enough about our financial, or I'm sorry, about our empathy deficit. What he meant there was we have a severe empathy deficit in this country. And as you go on, on in life, you're going to learn that empathy doesn't get easier. It, in fact, gets harder. After college, there's no more, uh, there's no more requirement to go and serve the community. Nobody's going to force you to care about anything or anyone. Not only that, but we live in a culture that discourages empathy. We live in a culture that says, you better be right, skinny, you better be, you better be young, you better be, uh, you better be smart, you better be entertained and safe. And at the end of the day, if I've thoroughly confused you about empathy, author Bob Goff has something to say about it. He says, love is never stationary. In the end, love doesn't just keep thinking about it or planning for it. Simply put, love does. Love does. 
If there's one thing that I've learned since being in ministry is that empathy doesn't require having all the answers. In fact, empathy only requires a willingness to sit and to stop and to listen and to care. Theodore Roosevelt, I didn't know that he said this, but Theodore Roosevelt once said, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Nobody knows, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. There are three areas of our life, three areas of my life that could use a lot more empathy. Number one, we could use a lot more empathy in our conversations. So instead of being the tennis ball machine, lobbing our stuff to the other person, we could use a lot more of thinking about the other person on the other side of the net. And when we do that, when we pause and internalize what's going on on the other side of the net, we start to lose sight of the anxiety that's raging inside of us. And when we do that, we starve it of its, of its power. Number two, we could use a lot more empathy in our actions, in our, in our behavior. My dad used to remind me that uh, nobody likes to hear a skinned knee story when they're down with a skinned knee. Nobody, that, that's not going to help your pain. I don't, I don't want to hear about your dumb story about two years ago when you skinned your knee. I just skinned my knee right now. And the point is empathy is saying, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry that happened. Let me run and get an ice pack. Uh, is there anything else I can do to help? Number three, we could use a lot more empathy in how we spend our time. When you take away the 24 hours, you know, there's 24 hours in a day. When you take away the time needed for sleep, needed for school, needed for some of us work, needed for studying, needed for extracurriculars. We take away all that time. There's very little and very precious time left in our days. And statistically, every single person in this room, me included, spend about four hours of that, of that little time left on ourselves. We spend four hours on average a day on ourselves. And I'm trying, I'm trying so desperately to volunteer in my community more, to pay more attention to my wife, to pay more attention to my kids, to pay more attention to the other person on the other side of the net because that's gonna help starve my anxiety. And that's, that's how I wanna use my time, my limited time every single day to help starve that anxiety. And so I have learned that I cannot release my anxiety without empathy. That's just what I've learned, and I hope that's helpful for somebody in the room tonight. I, ha I cannot star I, I can only get rid of my anxiety with empathy. I can only have empathy by listening. I can only listen by being curious, and I can only be curious by being humble. And C.S. Lewis, a lot of y'all know this, but C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking of yourself, not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And that kind of bleeds into empathy, doesn't it? Uh, there's a philosopher. I'm not going to try to pronounce his name. All of you probably know who it is. He said, I think, therefore I am. I think, therefore I am. And unfortunately, there's some truth to that. Unfortunately, just like Ryan talked about earlier tonight, and just like Julianne spoke about, when you start to, when you start to focus on the things that you label yourself as, you start to internalize them and believe them to the point of you cannot... You can't remove yourself from them anymore. So when I did that with anxiety in college, I started to say things like, I am anxious. I am an anxious person. 
And instead, when we practice empathy, when we are so confused with who to love, or when we're so infatuated with who to love and how to love them well, we begin to starve ourselves of the anxiety that's robbing us of an identity with God. And so we start to say things like, I'm managing the anxiety in my life. It's over there. I've distanced myself from the labels in my life. And when we are less focused on ourselves and more focused on others, we start to climb out of this deep pit that I called anxiety in college. And we're using the ladder of empathy to get us there. When we zoom out far enough to where we're so focused on the person on the other side of the net that we begin to lose sight of our own anxiety, we starve it and rob it of the power that we give it. And again, I, I just hope that this was helpful for maybe one person in here. This is not prescriptive. This is just trying to be helpful. So I want, I'd love to pray for us. And then Ryan's going to come up and close us out. Heavenly Father, thank you for Evie and the words of truth that she spoke over us. You are a good, good father. Thank you for Julianne and her courage to share some really raw, real stuff. Thank you for the words of truth that she spoke. Thank you for this place that we can call home, this people, this group of people we can call a family. Thank you for leaders who encourage us to be real and raw and honest with us in a safe space. Thank you for our leaders who love us and sacrifice for us and pray for us all the time. Thank you for this place. Thank you for giving us the ultimate example of empathy. Jesus Christ came down and made himself just like us and gave us all the same weaknesses and all the same temptations and all the same desires, every single one of them that we feel so that we can't look at him and say, you don't know how I feel. You can't empathize with me. Jesus did that for every single person in here. Thank you, God, for that. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for you as our heavenly Father. Thank you for this place. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.